Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast we talk about baseball. 52 weeks out of the year, there is no offseason. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sully. Please call me Sully. Of course, we're outside of Sully Baseball Studio, actually, in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. Well, as I continue to post these podcasts on the week of Christmas, I decided to post an interview that I did actually back in the spring, but I... You know, I never got around to editing it. It wasn't it nothing to do against the my subject of the interview. It's just a lot of things in life caught up with me and my schedule and stuff going around, and it kind of fell through the cracks. And I was going through old files, and I said, "Oh my God, I interviewed Bob Kendrick, who is the president of the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City." We had a wonderful chat back in May. And I never got around to editing it, and I feel terrible because he was a very gracious guest, and he's a terrific person. So my apologies, Bob, for not getting around to editing this and having life get in the way. But as we're here posting our podcast here on Christmas week, I felt this is an ideal time to give my listeners a wonderful president of listening to the intelligent and generous and passionate baseball mind of Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. Thanks for giving me uh, a little bit of uh, your time. If you don't mind me asking, how is, when I record uh, an introduction, uh, I'll, I'll record an introduction later to the podcast, exactly how do you want me to have you have your name said, have your title said, and everything? Like I, I, I like to ask people that so I get it right. Okay. So. Um, the name name is just Bob Kendrick, mm-hmm. and my title is President, Negro League Baseball Museum, and leagues is plural. Okay, Negro League Space. Okay, I just want, I knew you were the president, but I didn't. You know, people. If you say oh, the absolutely. title, yeah, absolutely. I'd rather ask that dumb question now rather than you know have you listen and say, oh, that's not my title. That's not my you know so. Anyway, that's that's the television producer and me, the little bit of a worrywart television producer and me coming out here. So, again, thanks for giving me a little bit of your time. Um, now, I, I want to talk a little bit about – I want to ask you a little bit about how you became involved with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum uh, and give people an idea of what they would expect to see when they come to the physical – place, so they come to the physical um, location in Kansas City? Well, my involvement is interesting in its own right because I started, believe it or not, as a volunteer in 1993. (laughs) You know, I go from volunteer to now trying to lead this great organization, so it's been an amazing story for me, both personally and professionally, relative to my involvement with this great organization. And when people come here, they're going to be surprised because I think that many believe that they're going to bear witness to a very sad, somber kind of story because they know that this story is anchored in the ugliness of American segregation. Right. But we don't treat it that way. We really don't. No, there's nothing sad about the way we treat this story. This is a celebration. And as I like to say, it is the celebration of the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. So you're going to come in and you're going to experience one of the greatest chapters in not only baseball history, 
but in American history. And that's the untold story of the Negro Leagues and a story that got its origin right here in Kansas City. So for those who are asking why is the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City, Kansas City is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. The leagues were formed here in 1920. And so we take you on a nostalgic journey back in time. And you're able to not only witness the rise and subsequent fall of the Negro Leagues, but you're also able to parallel what was going on in society at the same time. So it really becomes an all-encompassing history lesson you know, relative to this story. And, and I think it has struck all of our visitors in a, in a way in which they didn't really expect. They come in, they're amazed by what they experience, and I'll be honest, they're somewhat dismayed by the fact that they just now had an opportunity to learn this. You know, they leave questioning, why didn't I know this during my own formal education? And right. yes, quite simple. American historians did us all a disservice. They kept this story away from us. And what we know is that there are gaps in the pages of American history books. So there are so many who have contributed to the greatness of this country. Their stories have not been told. We're telling that story as it relates to the history of the Negro League. And I think it's really critical, at least from my point of view, to tell this story in a way that is a, a celebration and also a time of celebration where that we still have living members that are still, I mean, they're becoming fewer and fewer, obviously, but there, there are still some that we can celebrate this while they're alive, as opposed to having everything be a, a posthumous celebration. Well, that was really important, and, and that was with the mindset that we knew when we formed the Negro Leagues Museum in 1990. We knew that it was literally a race against time. The people who were part of this wonderful story we were going to be losing them. And, and right. even more so, the people who saw them play, they were all mm -hmm. going to be gone. And so it, it was important to us and for us to make sure that we documented, substantiated as much of this history while we still had these guys still alive. And there are only a handful of these men still with us. They're like World War II vets. As a matter of fact, many of them were World War II vets. And in the not-so-distant future, they're all going to be gone. And so what stood at risk, however, and I think it's why this museum is so important, because what stood at risk is that we were going to lose this piece of history. This story was going to die when that last Negro Leaguer left the face of this earth. The story is too powerful. It is too meaningful. It is too compelling. It is too historically significant to stand the risk of it going extinct when we lose that last Negro Leagues player. And so we set the wheels in motion to build this museum so that their legacy will play on long after these men are gone. Yeah, and it's one of the things that there was, I know in 2006 there was uh, uh, several former Negro Leaguers all were brought in at the same time. Um, I had gotten to know the, the, some members of the family of uh, the Turkey Stearns' family. Um, uh -huh. But, you know, when you, you look at whether it's Willie Foster, whether it's Ray Brown, whether it's, you know, Jose Mendez, how many of these players were uh, Bullet Joe Rogan? These were all players who should be household names, who should be one of those beloved figures for a major league city, you know, like the way you would associate, you know, Cobb with the, the Tigers or Honus Wagner with the Pirates. And I guess for me, as a huge baseball lover, uh, I do, I am happy that we're celebrating the legacy of the league. And I also get frustrated when I think 
man, we missed some great baseball. You know, there was great yeah. baseball, but we also missed this, like this, this history where you and I may know the name Bullet Joe Rogan. You know, you and I may know Bajom Wilson or Turkey Stearns. You yeah. know, but you have to be. You have to be a baseball fan at our level of intensity to really to really know those names. And that's one of the things that I find I'm glad they're being celebrated. I'm glad they're being celebrated in a joyous way. But there's some part of me can't feel a little bit of frustration sure. that no, no. that they should be superstars. They should be they should have they should have monuments to them. Mainstream America missed some of the greatest baseball players to ever play this game. And right. obviously we bring them to life here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Many of the names that you just mentioned, they would have been stars in any league. And, right. and again, I think as baseball fans, we were cheated. Yeah, right. because we still have seen all the great stars take the field together. And, and it just leaves you questioning how much better would our great game have been had the doors open sooner. We saw the impact that happened after 1947. Uh-huh. And, and so, as you can well imagine, when when our guests come here, many of them are absolutely flabbergasted to learn because they didn't know that guys like Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Ernie Banks, Roy Campanella, Larry uh-huh. Doby, all these guys come out the Negro Leagues, and, and they were good young players in the Negro Leagues who blossomed and became superstars in the major leagues. It's scary when I hear guys like the legendary Buck O'Neill and Monty Irvin, guys who I have the utmost respect, who were great baseball players. And, of course, Monty Irvin got the opportunity to transition over into the major leagues when they say that, in Buck's case, Oscar Charleston was better than Willie Mays. Now, it's scary to think that there was a player better than Willie Mays and we didn't get to see him in the major leagues. Or that as great as Henry Aaron and Willie Mays were, Monty Irvin says, they don't compare to Josh Gibson. Yeah. That's scary. You know, and, and that, as fans, is shameful that we didn't get to see that in all of its full glory. Now, if you're African-American, you saw this. You saw this great style of play. They filled up ballparks all over the country watching these men play, and these men were heroes in their communities. But, again, as baseball fans, we should have seen them all be able to take the field at the same time, and our game would have been so much better. And I would, you know, certainly believe that the record books would be entirely different. Right. But not just the record books, but also who would win the pennant? You know, what teams are the champions? I mean, you can't, oh, absolutely. You, can't have, you can't have a conversation with a Yankee fan about anything, about the weather, about politics, without them bringing up all the World Series that they won. <laughs> Well, Larry Doby, Larry Doby tells a great story. He tried to get the Cleveland Indians to sign Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and Ernie Banks. And the scouting report came back and said Hank had a hitch in the swing, Willie couldn't hit the curveball, and that Ernie Banks had no range. Now, can you imagine? No. Had the Indians been bold enough to bring those stars over to their team with that great pitching staff that they had, we would be talking about the Cleveland Indians in the same light as people talk about the New York Yankees. No doubt about it. Yeah. No yeah. doubt about it. Yeah, that's, un- that's unbelievable. And and you see the legacy of when you not just of like the you know, the players the, the, the top players came in and became the elite immediately became the elite players. You brought up of course the great Buck O'Neill who became 
who was a coach for the Cubs eventually, but he also brought in talent. He had an eye for talent. And if you think yeah. about some of the players, uh, he brought in, like, I mean, this is just off the top of my head, but I know Lee Smith, Joe Carter, Oscar Gamble. You know, there was a bunch of players that he Oh, two Hall of Famers, two Hall of Famers, and Ernie Banks and Lou Brock. That's right. So, well, that's yeah. I keep forgetting yeah. Lou Brock. Lou Brock was like, still is a great one in there. Uh, yeah, and a lot of people forget that Lou Lou Brock's career began with the Chicago Cubs, and right. Buck brought him to the Cubs, signed him to the Cubs, and then, mm-hmm. as he said, he was the last guy to sign off on the trade, one of the worst trades in baseball history, that yep. sent Lou Brock to St. Louis. And old Buck said every time he went to Bush Stadium, the fans there gave him a standing ovation. <laughs> Man. That was a, and he helped them win two World Series and another pennant along the way. Got three thousand hits. Stole was stole more bases until Ricky showed up. Until and Ricky then, showed up. And then Absolutely. the Cubs got Ernie Brolio or something like that. It was, Ernie uh, Brolio, a hurt arm pitcher, who we never heard of again. Yeah, but we all know Lou Brock is. We all know Lou Brock. Yeah, that's just. I mean. I guess like that brings up another thing that I was thinking about in and one of the great things the great legacies of the uh, the history of the Negro Leagues was not just the players on the field but the fact that it was management, it was owners, it was general managers, it was the Ephemanleys of the world, it was the yeah. you know, it was the you know, Rube Foster should have been the John McGraw and Judge Landis rolled up into one. He was such a powerful – I mean, he was a great pitcher, but he became the great – for those of you who don't know who Rube Foster is, if you're listening to this podcast, look up Rube Foster. He's one of the most fascinating figures in the history of baseball. I, oh, no question. And, and, I, and I think one of the most important figures in yep. baseball history. I mean, yeah, a wonderful absolutely. character. A wonderful character, but also – wonderful influence on on the game and how it was played and how the league was formed and I mean why don't I mean I have you on the phone with me why don't you explain to people why I'm gushing so much about the the legacy of Rube Foster and why I wish that he was one of those household names in the history of baseball well you know it, it, it's it's he is so important to this game Rube Foster of course led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners into Kansas City and that's where they met here at the Old Pacific YMCA to establish the Negro Leagues here in Kansas City, Negro National League. And, of course, those leagues would operate for 40 years. But Rube Foster, in the early of a black baseball, had been a great pitcher himself. And I heard right. by McGraw's name, Rube Foster is credited with having invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then it was called a fadeaway. And it is widely believed, and because it's true, that John McGraw snuck Rube Foster into his camp so that Rube Foster could teach Christy Matheson how to throw the screwball. Christy Matheson threw that pitch all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame that he learned from the great Rube Foster. But Rube was light years ahead of his time. Rube Foster is one of the greatest baseball minds this sport has ever seen that unfortunately nobody knows anything about, even though he is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Rube Foster would draw a circle on the first baseline and a circle down the third baseline, and if every one of his players couldn't drop a bunt inside that circle, he would find them. You know, <laughs> if they were tagged out standing up, he would find them. Rue was adamant about the style of play that became signature Negro Leagues baseball very fast, 
very aggressive, very daring. They bonded their way on. They stole second. They steal third. And if you weren't too smart, as old Buck would say, they steal home. Well, that was the style of play that drew black and white fans who sat side by side during an era when doing something socially together was virtually unheard of. That racehorse, exciting brand of baseball brought the races together. It's also the irony of the story of the Negro League, a league born out of segregation becomes the driving force for social change in our country. That's right. Yeah, and, and it's really, you know, it's really, you can't, I mean, again, this is this is not anything that anyone who would listen to a podcast that does not already realize, but you can't write the the history of the civil rights movement without pointing at least towards the integration of baseball and making seeing how it forced people to think, huh, if I'm okay with this, would I be okay with that? And and at least from at least from white America's point of view, uh, that seems to be a start, at least a jump off point. And I think a lot of times you'll see in in our nation's history, it's a sporting event, whether it is Jesse Owens, whether it is the the Williams sisters, or 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 Tiger Woods, or Ichiro, or whomever it is, it's a, a athlete can oftentimes the opinions that we have of an athlete can so often start at least start the conversation because so it it is I don't want to use the term black and white it's on the field you got the hit you got the homer you won the, the grand slam you know tournament or whatever it is and so that when you see what the Negro Leagues begat and, and how that affected America, I think in some ways that's what your museums are celebrating about. Oh, no question. No question. And I think that is the greater context in which this story, because for us, I'll be honest, man, it is a given that you're going to come here and you're going to meet some of the greatest baseball players to ever put on a baseball uniform. We almost de-emphasize the players in lieu of a story a story that had escaped the pages of American history books. And it is a powerful, awe-inspiring story of the courage of these great athletes who refused to accept the notion that they were unfit to do anything. So I'll show you. You won't let me play with you. I'll create a league of my own. That league would then rise to rival and in many cities across this great country surpass Major League Baseball in popularity and in attendance. But along the way, they not only changed the game, they changed our country for the better. And that's the real story. Yeah, that's a story that is larger than the game of baseball, although the Negro Leagues is just a tiny part of the great story of the game of baseball. But beyond the, the social aspect, a lot of this is just fun. I mean, the characters are fun. The nicknames oh, are the, fun. The, 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 the stories are wonderful. Oh, man. I mean, you know, the characters, as you mentioned, and, and again, you'll hear me harkening and, and talk about the late, great Buck O'Neill because, again, I was, I was so blessed to spend so much time with him, and he became almost the voice of the Negro League. But he would oftentimes say, you don't have to fictionalize the story of the Negro League to make it entertaining. Just tell the real story. It's entertaining in its own right. So you had these characters. Uh, they great, make great character studies. They were great baseball players the trials and tribulations, the drama, everything that you need to make a good story is embodied there in the story of the Negro Leagues. But, the, you know, the great nicknames, you know, the monikers that were so much attached to and the lore and the legend around the likes and almost mythical-like uh, right. 
lore around the likes of Satchel Paige and Cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson. And you mentioned Boo Jim. Boo Jim, Jim Wilson, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, those kinds of guys. Smokey Joe Williams and Hilton Smith. You know, there's just so many great ball players who were great characters who entertained. They had the adulation of fans. They just happened to primarily be black fans. And, right. and all of these guys, like I mentioned earlier, would have been stars in any league. Wow, that's uh, and and Willie Willie the Devil Wells, uh, El Diablo. I, yeah, <laughs> I mentioned uh, Turkey Stearns, who's uh, I've got to know, especially his granddaughter, pretty well over the last few years. And apparently, he had a batting stance that he had his toe pointed straight toe. down like a ballerina. Yeah. Yes. And it hit the snot out of the ball. <laughs> but he could hit it, and he had this unorthodox way in which he ran, which looked like his arms were flapping like a turkey, hence yeah. the nickname Turkey. But he covered a lot of ground, man. He could pick him up and put him down with the best of them. Great, great defensive outfielder, great arm, great hitter. I mean, when you hear guys like Satchel Page talk about Turkey Stearns and how great Turkey Stearns was, Cool Papa Bell, who had the right. utmost admiration of Turkey Stearns. He, of course, in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, but right. he's not a household name. He should be. Yeah, he should be. It's yeah, funny. What that's I, what we're trying to do. It's funny. When I hear stories of, like, specifically Turkey Stearns, but also some of the other ones, I think about some of the players that I grew up watching. And I, I grew up in the, in the late 70s and in the 80s was when I really started loving baseball. And I remember there was a player for St. Louis, uh, Willie McGee, who was a wonderful player. Uh, oh, yeah. Won, he won a couple of batting titles, won an MVP one year. And I remember his he he had a very strange batting stance. Like his hands were kind of close. He had this little squint in his eye, so he always looked like he was almost confused. You know, that looked like <laughs> or like or he was trying to read a sign that was really far away. You know, that look. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he always looked like, I used to kid that he said he looked like the foreign exchange student learning how to play baseball, but then he would hit 360. And, exactly. Because you know, the swing would be an awkward swing, but it would be a line drive, and then he would make a great catch in the outfield. And I think about Willie McGee because if he was someone who we didn't have video of, he, he, played, in tele, he played on television, he played in three or four different World Series in his career and everything. So we all saw that. But if we yeah. never saw that, the legend of Willie McGee would have been he held his hands in this strange way and he had this strange look, and he, but then he was able to get a big hit or something like that. And that's one of the things that I think about in terms of some of these players because I wish I was able to have the film or something to witness this instead of hearing the legend. I mean, the legend is wonderful, but... You know, you you look at players today and think, okay, which one of those players I see today would be the equivalent of Satchel or would be the equivalent of, you know, I mean, was Ricky Henderson our cool Papa Bell and that sort of thing. And, you know, baseball always exists in the past, present, and future because we always bring up the past and we always look at the present. But I just think there was so many legends of the past that, I'm so happy that you're celebrating because they're worth celebrating. No, we, we absolutely agree wholeheartedly. And that's also one of the reasons that we do an event here in Kansas City 
at the museum called the Hall of Game. Oh, and the okay. Hall of Game annually honors. Right? Uh-huh, this coming up June 10th. Right. Annually honors former major leaguers who we believe played the game the way they played it in the Negro Leagues. So you played it with passion, you played it with dedication, you obviously played it with a high level of skill, but you also played it with a little swag, a little right. flair, as the kids would say. You had to have that if you were going to play in the Negro Leagues because they knew that this game was entertaining. It right. was entertainment at its highest form. So you went to a Negro Leagues game, you were going to see great baseball, but you were also going to be thoroughly entertained, as the late great Buck O'Neill would so eloquently say, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something you ain't never seen before. You know, and that was that style of play that made Negro Leagues baseball such a fan favorite. And I think in our own way is our way to say that these guys that we are honoring, that they were good enough they could have played in the, in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, a lot of people think that the Negro Leagues were an inferior league. Nope. 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 The Negro Leagues would not take a back seat to any league. You had some of the greatest baseball talent to ever play this game, they were playing there in the Negro Leagues, both African-American and Hispanic. And, right. and so, yeah, and that's what I have to My job is to help convince those who come to see us that there were two professional baseball leagues operating simultaneously to one another. One we know everything about, the major leagues, or we got a place to go find information about right. it. The other, the Negro Leagues, we know very little about. And so we bring this story to life so that not that you can decide whether or not they were better than their counterparts, but when we have these great conversations about the greats of the game, I don't want them excluded. I want them to be included in those conversations. So we can give you a frame of reference that you can draw from, and then you can make the determination of your, on your own on, on how good they were. And by the way, if you're listening and you go to uh, com, that's NegroLeagueBaseballMuseum.com, um, you'll see that there's info for the Hall of Game on June 10th, and you have listed here, at least on the website, four pretty impressive names. Uh, you got Lee Smith, who I re- I'm a Boston fan, so I remember Lee Smith played with us for a little while. He was mainly with the Cubs, so had some great years yes. with the Cardinals as well. Um, you have the great Maury Wills. Yes. You have Hall of Famer Tony Perez who yes. put a dagger in the heart of the Red Sox in 1975. <laughs> um, and you have, I think, one of the most underrated hitters of the Absolutely. 70s and 80s, Mr. Al Oliver. He played for a couple of more seasons. And he, I know that he hit free agency around collusion, but he was still a, he was no longer an elite hitter, but he was still a major league hitter. He was yeah, close and, enough to 3,000 hits. If he had played a few more years, he would have got three thousand. talk about Hall of Famer Al Oliver. Yeah, he would have gotten he would have gotten three he would have gotten three thousand hits. And very seldom do you see a lifetime a guy with a lifetime batting average over three hundred that's not in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, we honored one last year um, out of the Minnesota Twins, the great Tony Oliva, oh, yeah. and this year Al Oliver. And so what we did this year, we've got one guy who obviously is in the Hall of Fame, but we just enjoyed the way he played the game. He certainly had that same style that made Negro Leagues great, Tony Perez, Mm -hmm. and three guys who should absolutely, by our estimation, be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And and Lee Smith was one of the great closers of all time. He held an all-time stage record for quite some time. And uh, did it, and had that menacing look, and that slow, methodical walk out to the mound. You know, he was already sending a message before he even got to the mound. And, and so, and, and of course, Lee was signed, as you talked about earlier, by 
uh, our friend, the late great Buck O'Neill. And so it's going to be great to have all these guys here. Right. But it will be an even special moment because of the connection of Lee with Buck O'Neill and the work that Buck O'Neill did to build this great museum. And one great thing, and then you've been very generous with your time. I really do appreciate it. One great thing about I've yet to come to your museum. I can't wait to come to your museum. I, when I'll go there, and I'll, obviously I'm going to – it's right in my wheelhouse. I'm going to have a wonderful time there. But the thing that I love about your museum, even just in theory, is that it's in Kansas City. And the reason it's in Kansas City is that's when the – as you mentioned, that's when the league was formed, and that's also when the most uh, celebrated team in the history of the, the Negro Leagues was the Kansas City Monarchs. And so it's in Kansas City for a real reason, as opposed to Cooperstown, which there's no real – baseball wasn't really invented in Cooperstown. That's a bit of a technology. And if there's anything that is symbolic, if, look it, you've got this fantasy. This is, the re, this is what really happened. This is reality here, and we're here for a real reason. And I just think that's so wonderful when I heard the museum. When did it, it, when did it open? It opened relatively recently, the museum, correct? Yeah, yeah. We, um, we, you know, we started this thing back in 1990. Right. And then we opened, but most people recognize this when we opened the new museum here, and that was in 1997. But that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. We opened the new, when we expanded it into this, our current home, in November of 1997, that's when most people started to recognize the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But we started this thing. We established in 1990 in a little one-room office space. uh, And guys like the late, great Buck O'Neill and other local Negro Leaguers who were with us at that time literally took turns paying the rent to keep the little office open. And that gave us that foundation to go out and build a facility that would not only pay rightful tribute to one of the great chapters in baseball history, but one of the great chapters in American history, and we went from a one-room office to today being recognized as America's National Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So it's been a tremendous journey for a little museum that no one gave any chance of succeeding when we started here in historic 18th and Vine, the Jazz District here in Kansas City back in 1990. Man, I just realized how old I am, because I thought that was relatively recent. It's 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I realized how old I am. Holy Toledo. Uh, no, that's, and do you think that the – I mean, that's, this is not a question I prepared, but do you think the fact that in, in 1997, that was the year when they retired Jackie's number throughout Major League Baseball. They had the big ceremony at Chase Stadium and everything, and Rachel Robinson was there with Commissioner uh, Selig and President Clinton. Do you think the fact that Jackie got so much attention that year helped get your museum the attention that it deserved? Well, it, it, it certainly helped. I think there were a lot of things that helped. You know, Ken Burns' epic documentary on the history that's of baseball. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And, uh-huh. and, and Buck O'Neill's compelling narration in that documentary, because there's no question, old Buck stole the show. Yeah. There's no question. I mean, he is uh, he he is by far, out of a wonderful film, the most memorable part right. of the film. America fell in love with old Buck. You know, this very charming, gentle man mm-hmm. telling these wonderful stories to baseball fans. They had never heard he was doing it with a twinkle in his eye and a smile that lit up the screen. And America fell in love with Buck. He was 82 years old at that time. Wow. And, and God blessed him to live for another 12 years, and he went all over the country gallivanting, 
preaching the gospel of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of his museum to any and everybody who would listen. And as a result, this museum really took root and it started to grow. And thanks to the nurturing of Buck and others, uh, we've been able to build a wonderful edifice that is an amazing tribute to one of the most, I think, important chapters of American history, the story of the Negro Leagues. I agree. And by the way, before I let you go, I just one of my favorite details about Buck O'Neill in the Ken Burns film is that obviously Ken Burns, he, he has the panelists, the, the, the people who are kind of the narrators that he keeps cutting to, and he cuts to all this wonderful footage and photography, and it's even called a Ken Burns style, the way he'll zoom in to certain pictures and everything. But the ending of the episode called Shadow Ball, which yes. uh, covers the among many other storylines, it, it tells the story of the history of the Negro Leagues, and two of the main characters in the in that episode are Josh Gibson and, and Satchel Paige. Yes. The last the last part of that entire episode, Buck O'Neill tells the story of when the two of them faced off during the Negro League <laughs> World Series. And what's wonderful about it? It's an epic story. He tells it with wonderful humor. He paints an amazing picture. And it's so compelling that you feel like you're in the stadium the way he's telling it. And when you watch it, Ken Burns is smart enough. He doesn't cut any pictures. He doesn't cut any footage. He doesn't even cut the story short. He just lets it play out. And if you'll see the last few minutes of that episode, they don't cut anything. It's just one sustained shot of Buck telling this story like a masterful storyteller. And to have was. it. To have a filmmaker like Ken Burns realize, I don't need to cut to anything. I'm just going to let Buck yeah. go. Yeah. And, and, what, yeah. and, it, and he even says at the end, he says, and that's the end of that story. And it fades out. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> yeah, it always brings a smile to my face every time I see those snippets from the Ken Burns documentary. The Kansas yeah. City Royals uses the wonderful soundbite of Buck singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game" as part of a a promotion called Rays Royals, and it's out, it gives you goosebumps. You know, if you got a pulse in your body when you hear old Buck singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game <laughs> and this beautiful imagery around it, yeah, you have to feel something. And it was absolutely brilliant of the Royals to kill. And, and, and as a result, Buck is still alive. He's still oh, yeah. very much alive. And, and, of course, this museum is here to keep his legacy alive as well as the legacy of some 2,600 men and women who played in this league. Well, look, if if having you on here will get anyone else to know or learn a little bit about something on this, then I feel like I've done my job. I can't thank you enough. I've had a wonderful time chatting with you. Hopefully you've enjoyed this, too. Uh, I've had a wonderful time. And, hey, anyone who's in Missouri or Kansas City or if you're passing through, you know, I haven't been to Kansas City for a bunch of years. I saw a Royals game there a long time ago. But uh, next time I come out there, I'm going to have some quality barbecue, and I'm going to go to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and please, everyone else do that too. And if you can't come out there, then at least follow your follow you on Twitter at NLBMPrez because you have a lot of great links, a lot of great stories. Uh, I, I mean, I, you you probably see me. I'm liking a lot of stuff you post up there. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I you know, but all this wonderful, like, uh, right, you have this one thing that I think it's Jeremy Sickle pointed out of this great image of uh, Buck O'Neill, this great 
great stuff, and you have great events that are happening there, and, and it's just wonderful work you're doing. And I really wanted to have – I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while, so I'm glad we <laughs> finally were able to, to put this together. So thanks so much for your time. I do appreciate it. It is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, and, and I look forward to seeing you here out in Kansas City to visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Well, when I come out there, I'm not going to be shy. I'm going to come by and say hello to you, so that, don't worry about that. So. All right, by all means. All right, thanks so much. I appreciate your time. This is great. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Thank you, Bob, for your time and generosity. And I can't wait to go to Kansas City. I would love, I'd love to see another Royals game, but I would love to go to the museum and catch up with Bob and to see the amazing exhibits they have there of the other major leagues that play during baseball's golden age. So thank you, Bob Kendrick. Thank you all for listening. Go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, Travel, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, and everywhere. The music is by Ted Dr. Patrick Kulisky. Continuing my Christmas week podcast, this has been Sully Baseball, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.